I don't know. Why would you ask that? <laughs> Let's you see. Have all the notes. Let's see. That album came out in. Welcome to I Buy That for a Dollar, a podcast about inexpensive, common, and underappreciated records that are waiting to be rediscovered. I'm your host, Sean Hartman, and I'm something of a wizard, and yet anything but a true star. All right. I'm co-host Jeremy Ruggles, and I found out that I have the same favorite Todd Rundgren record as Frank Rosatano. Interesting. From 30 Rock. What is it? The album that we're going to be talking about no, today? His favorite was Hermit of Mancalo. Wow. How did you know that? That's incredible, Wes. Because <laughs> I had to remember the joke. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. Good recall. Yeah. It's the joke is that nothing rhymes with Hermit of Mancalo. <laughs> that lacks context to make that funny still. I'm just amazed that Wes pulled that out. So, well, I, Big 30 Rock. Yeah. Uh, I am co-host Peter Cook, and I have written a short story that I would like to recite for all of you right now. It's a, another example of microfiction. Ooh. Bring it. Are you ready? A blizzard, a new car. <laughs> oh. You got to fill in some of the, some of the spaces, yeah. but it tells a story. A Michigan story. A Michigan story. <laughs> really, really Perhaps. paints a picture. They should have put that on a Band-Aid and put it on the record. Oh, true. <laughs> and? Do I introduce myself now? Yeah, we have a guest <laughs> with us. Hey, I, I'm Wes Wheat, and I'm, I don't know. I just, I just don't know what to feel, I guess. <laughs> International feel? <laughs> Yeah, we you could start with international feel. Yeah, it would be a good good place to start. Fine, we'll start with international feel. Wait, let's tell them which record we're doing first. <laughs> what record did you bring, Wes? I brought A Wizard of True Star by Todd Rundgren. And do you want to play International Feel first? Yeah, why not? Starts the album. Why not? <laughs> Side A, track one.
probably good to restate every so often that although this podcast is called I'd Buy That for a Dollar, they're not necessarily dollar records that we're going for. We aim for records that you can find for $5 or less, especially like Discog's median value of $5 or less. This one's probably cheating a little bit. I paid, according to the price sticker, $6.99 a couple years ago. But I'd say that you're not going to find too many records that sound like this for the price that you can find a Wizard of True Star for. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree. I still find it in dollar bins occasionally, less and less, but it's still easy to find for less than 10 most places. And yeah, it's it's all over the place. It's a wonderful record. There's a lot of strange sounds going on that yeah, normally would have to be a a much pricier, more experimental rare album. Yeah. Also, great bang for your buck at 56 minutes long. True. <laughs> <laughs> One of the longest single LPs. I know. Yeah, for those who don't understand a lot about record pressing, this is smushed on to the two sides 56 minutes is a lot to cram onto two sides and there's a huge volume compromise that is a result of that it's a a much quieter record than your normal standard commercial release which kind of just adds to the weirdness of it yeah yeah it loses a little fidelity it's very damageable because the grooves are closer together yeah it's a strange strange choice but Todd's a man of strange choices. <laughs> yes. Especially this is coming off of the huge commercial success that was his album Something Anything with big hits like Hello It's Me and I Saw the Light. Yeah. To to then come back with a messy psychedelic experimental record of this nature. You know, it's only Todd Rundgren could do. Wes, what in tarnation uh, made you bring this record to us? It, it's just really good. Um, and I've been a fan of it for a long time, but I hadn't listened to it in years before getting ready for this, which I realized because I couldn't find my copy for a minute. But it's just one of those records that like... So I used to be a prog rock DJ on Western Michigan University's campus radio station, WIDR. And when I first started that show, I had like a really loose knowledge of prog rock. So I would spend a lot of my time at the record stores just kind of flipping things and basing whether I should check it out on the cover. And boy, howdy, that's a cover that made me go, this is probably something should be on my show. Yeah. And I like, I knew the name Todd Rundgren. I don't think I, I think this is the first album of his I ever listened to. Like I knew Hello, It's Me like vaguely i don't think i'd ever like intentionally listened to it i think i just like heard it on like classic rock radio it's in the air that 70s show <laughs> it's like a episode where they go to a todd rundgren concert but and i put it on i'm like this is i don't think i've ever heard an album that sounds like this and like all the songs are like a, at least on like the first half or like a minute long it's just jumping from idea to idea to idea yeah the first one that we listened to that's kind of it's a more more it's weird but it's more of a focused song and then it just goes off on a medley of one weird idea to the next for several tracks yeah and it's that rare mix of really experimental and really catchy because like a lot of experimental music is not catchy you're not going to be like humming the tunes after you're listen after you're done listening to it but like stuff like international feel that gets stuck in my head Zen Archer, another Onion Head, you know, like, they just, they stick. So you want to go back to it, and then you're like, oh, yeah, there's all this other weird stuff in there, too. And even the catchy stuff's kind of weird. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really unique collision of experimental and pop. And and I, I love I love that hybrid. The bands like Thinking Fellers Union Local 282 were good at being both catchy and weird and Yeah, I'm a big fan. And I didn't know of this record until a few years ago. I was talking to former guest Stephen Plastic Crime Wave Krakow and how I'd been listening to something, anything a lot. And he was like, have you checked out a Wizard of True Star? No. And he was like, 
run. Don't walk to the record store. You will find a copy for not too much. Get it. Put it on. And and I did and just spun it over and over and over again. This, like you, Wes, was also the first Todd Rundgren album I had heard. Also for the exact same reason. <laughs> I was flipping through a friend's record collection and just saw it and was like, what is this? And <laughs> put it on and... I was in the right headspace at the time, and yeah, it's it's uh, it's a one of one. I would say it's a very <laughs> strange, unique record, but I like it specifically. Similarly to you, I would also say it doesn't feel like weird for weird's sake. It doesn't feel like he's trying to just make something aggressively experimental. Uh, it feels earnest, I guess, in some kind of way to me that I can't justify. But well, and he had had those those leanings even on his previous releases. You could tell, like there was just strange stuff in there for like a soulful pop record, and it just blossoms on here the the weirder side. Yeah, and it's just one of those albums that if someone's like likes weirder stuff but also like a pop sensibility it'll click with them like immediately because i remember i was i was record shopping with a buddy and i was like hey i'll buy you a record one of these two and the two i had in my hand because there's two I, I liked and had recently i think it was like not long after i'd gotten them so one was a wizard true star and the other was spectrum by billy cobham and i was like these are both records i would gladly buy my friend and he would enjoy and he put them both on, he's like, all right, well, this Billy Cobham record's really good, but I love this Todd Rundgren album. <laughs> like, I had him go over to, like, the listening station to check, check him out, and he's like, this is the one. And I'm like, all right, you made a good choice. I wouldn't judge you either way, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, I would say that both the artwork and the music are both striking and polarizing. You know, you see the artwork, and you're either like, oh, I want to flip right past this, or you're just immediately curious and have to hear it. And then with the music, you're either just totally blown away or you're running away (laughs) it could it can be compelling and it can be exhausting you know it it Mm -hmm. can be difficult and it can be rewarding it's and it's probably not always the mood that you're in (laughs) to to go down this yeah i'd be concerned if this if you're always in the mood for this (laughs) (laughs) well we will talk much more about todd rundgren and this album but We do want to say to our listeners that we are coming close to the end of our Patreon push that's going on all throughout the month of February. You have until February 28th of 2022 to sign up for our Patreon, and in return, you will receive some very cool gifts. Stylized in the manner of Todd Rundgren's enemy, John Lennon. Oh, 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 things that we're going to learn yet, huh? True. Yeah, we have a Sergeant Pepper theme to all the gifts, the cool limited edition merch that you'll get for signing up for the Patreon this time around, designed by artist and illustrator Ellen Vandermeid, whose work you can see on Instagram at Voyage with Ellen or VoyageWithEllen.com. And yeah, so we have. Several different tiers at which you can pledge. At the $1 tier, you get early access to episodes. You'll get the main line of episodes a few days in advance of everyone else. At the $5 tier, you get the early access plus bonus episodes. We do episodes on 45s, and that's always fun. We have over 20 of those as of this recording So there's a lot to dive into if you sign up for that $5 tier. At the $10 tier on Patreon, you get the early access, the bonus episodes, and the new monthly exclusive playlist where we will, once a month, one of us will put together a playlist somewhat related to the episodes surrounding it, and you'll have that. Sean is working on one as we speak. By the time this airs, it should be out, right, Sean? Yes. In the future world, when people are first hearing this episode, the playlist will have been out for over a week. I put like 
eight or nine hours into this playlist so far and i haven't even started recording it yet i'm i'm pulling out all the stops i'm going hard this is the most <laughs> effort i've ever put into a playlist in my entire life just for the ten dollar <laughs> tier on our patreon account that's how much you mean to us it's a lot of hype <laughs> it it's won't, gonna live up it won't disappoint yeah so yeah that's the new the ten dollar tier and we've had a few people sign up for that already, so get ready for that playlist. You'll probably have already heard it by the time this airs. And then at the $20 tier, that's the vinyl subscription, so you get the early access, the bonus episodes, the monthly exclusive playlist, and you'll also get records sent to you in the mail once a month from Sean Hartman, along with a handwritten note. It's like HelloFresh, but for cheap records. And some weird venture capitalist won't get all the money. It'll be us, and we don't even pay ourselves for any of this. Yeah, so. it just goes into funding for future ventures. Wait, I'm not getting paid? No, none of us get paid for this. <laughs> You're not paying me? Bro, we're paying you with so much experience, you don't even know. <laughs> <laughs> the exposure. Yeah, the exposure, the experience. You're welcome. <laughs> At the $1 tier, the, as far as the gifts go, you will receive the a sticker with a very cool Sgt. Pepper drum head, although in this case it says I'd buy that for a dollar. At the $5 tier, you'll get that sticker, plus you'll get a tote bag with the entire cover of Sgt. Pepper reimagined with us as the Beatles, but Ringo's still in there. Maybe we could have had Wes in there as, as Ringo. <laughs> True. Yeah. Why am I not on here? We'll have, you know, we'll look into it. And then, yeah, a, a lot of the pe- the artists that we featured are in the, uh, in the background of that image. So that will be on the tote bag. At the $10 tier, you'll get the sticker, the tote bag, plus a mug. I'd buy that for a dollar coffee mug. On one side is the aforementioned drum head. And on the other side are the three of us co-hosts in our Sergeant Pepper getup. And then at the $20 tier, you will get... The sticker, the tote bag, the mug, and a personalized print of the Sgt. Pepper reimagined image. So if you're hyped for all that, go right now to patreon.com slash podcast and pledge today, or you can find that link in the show notes of the episode. Once again, you have until February 28th, 2022 to sign up to receive these awesome, sweet, limited edition i'd buy that for a dollar swag gifts and with that let's return to todd rundgren yeah there's a lot here with with old todd let's start from the top he like sean now is a philly boy but he's a real philly boy (laughs) he's a true philly boy (laughs) sean's opposed no me and todd basically the same Todd Hartman. Todd Hartman. (laughs) Todd Rundgren was born in 1948 in the outskirts of Philly. He grew up listening to his parents' record collection, so he was a a vinyl guy like all of us. (laughs) Yeah, it was uh, such a cool and esoteric thing to do in his (laughs) day. (laughs) We're just going to skip right through to Todd being 17 years old. Whoa starting his first band. And then after high school, he well, his first band was called Money. And then <laughs> after high school, he joined a rock band called Woody's Truck Stop that became like one of the most popular blues rock bands in Philly at the time. They were also the only. No. <laughs> 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 You'd have to be the only with a name like that. (laughs) Who would pick that over anything? (laughs) True. So he's doing Woody's truck stop. He kind of loses interest in the blues. Yeah, there's not much of that in his music that I know of. (laughs) No, it seems like it wasn't really his bag. And he forms a psych rock band called Naz. Now that I've heard of. Yeah, Naz rules. Naz, this is actually preparing for this episode is the first time I'd heard Naz. I didn't even 
they were not even on my radar as a thing that existed. Power pop band, right? I I would call them more just psych rock. He imagined himself as competing with the Beatles with this band. You can tell from the album covers. <laughs> yeah, the vocal harmonies that they would use. Though I would say Naz was uh, trippier than the Beatles, in my opinion. Which is interesting because he didn't do psychedelic drugs until later. <laughs> this, we'll come back to that. Yeah. <laughs> True. But he seemed to be about the wild sounds already at this point in his life. So they get Naz gets signed to Atlantic Records in 1968. Another 20-year-old with just a couple years of experience in the music world with a major label record deal. It's interesting times back in the day. Yeah. By Naz's second album, his bandmates were kind of, they found Todd to be a bit too much. They thought Todd was uh, domineering, as they put it. And judging from how people react to him throughout the rest of his life, that all adds up. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you notice he's solo. not He's under his own name, not a band after this. Yeah. yeah. He also, he got really into Laura Nero, and apparently the rest of his band did not like that. They were not into Laura Nero at all. He was taking a lot of cues from that. You don't hear it as much on this record as you do on something or anything, but yeah. he definitely has a lot of influence from Laura Nero. Who you guys should cover. (laughs) Yeah, we've been planning to since the beginning and just haven't gotten around to it for some reason. And her entire discography. (laughs) Yeah. I think I bought them all for $5. Do you know what other famous musician had a band called, I think they were called The Naz, before forming their famous band? No. Alice Cooper. Cooper. The Alice Cooper band... Before they were called Alice Cooper, were called the Spiders. But before mm. they were the Spiders, they were the Naz. And I think they changed it because of Todd Rundgren's band. I don't know how two different people who went on to be incredibly influential stumbled on the same weird name, but it's it's weird as heck. Is, yeah. is it a reference to something? Like, where does it come from? Maybe it is. I don't... I've never... I don't, I've not looked too hard into why this happened, but I've never seen like why they were called Naz or the Naz. That's like Elvis Costello being Na- Napoleon Dynamite on Blood and Chocolate, and then like <laughs> the the movie maker claiming he had no idea that that. Name... I was about to ask, is like, did he do that on purpose? No, I, as far as yeah. from what I recall, the movie maker the, who made that film was like, I had no idea that this was like a thing, and and Elvis Costello's like, surely. Two people didn't independently come up with that name. Yeah. yeah, but I also don't know that many people who like know Blood and Chocolate that strongly. So I, be- I believe the guy that he'd never listened to it. I don't think I've ever listened to Blood and Chocolate. Dang. Well, you should listen to it, but let's get back to Todd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Todd gets kind of chased out of Naz by his bandmates who are like, why are you making this music now? And he gets recruited by Albert Grossman to be a producer. You guys know that name? Yeah. I do know that name. Yeah, it's Tom Cruise from Tropic Thunder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Albert Grossman managed Bob Dylan, Janis Joplin, Peter, Paul, and Mary, Gordon Lightfoot, Odetta. All the big time folkies in that era, he was the manager. And he brings on Todd to try and help punch up some of these folkies into making more textured, let's say, music. Yeah, I saw in an interview with Todd that he felt he was the guy that studios called when an artist was kind of in a rut and needed some like new creative energy to, to spark something or to, to make a band sound more interesting. Yeah. That tracks with, yeah, a lot of his career as a producer that we'll get to in a bit here. I believe the first record he produced with that was a group called the great speckled bird. 
Oh yeah, which that's J- Ian and Sylvia. It's Ian right? and Sylvia. Yeah, yeah. It was Ian and Sylvia, who you should also cover on your show. Yeah, that's another one. <laughs> Long been planning on doing. I will come on for an Ian and Sylvia show. I love Ian and Sylvia. Excellent. We'll do that sometime. So he decides he's going to be a producer and he's not going to do the performing thing anymore. And that lasts for like a few months before he starts recording his first solo album, which is called Runt and doesn't actually have his name on it. It's under the moniker Runt as well. It's also the source of the 30 Rock joke we referenced earlier. Oh, it the, oh. the the reason that he said nothing rhymes with Hermit of Minkalo was because they were trying to reference or Tina Fey's character Liz Lemon was trying to reference Runt because something does rhyme with Runt. <laughs> yeah, and someone had called her that earlier in the episode, and she was trying not to say it. Right, right, right. I follow now. It took me forever to get that joke. I like <laughs> I think I finally was like, oh. I get it. <laughs> Some people that saw that episode may be getting it for the first time now. Thanks to us. I think most people don't get the Ethan Allen joke, but this isn't a 30 Rock podcast, so I won't. <laughs> it is now. <laughs> All right. Sticking on Runt. In 1971, he puts out his second album under the moniker Runt, but the album is called The Ballad of Todd Rundgren. Man. And as Wes mentioned previously, very much influenced by Laura Nero, he gets kind of a reputation that he doesn't like with those albums and with the next album he would put out, Something Anything, as sort of the male Carol King. <laughs> and he uh, was not a fan of being labeled that. That's funny because I definitely hearing more of his soul based stuff. I was like, "Oh, this kind of reminds me of Laura Nero and Carol King." Yeah, yep, it's definitely there. Did you know Laura Nero at one point asked him to be her uh, band leader when he was still in NAS? Interesting. Yeah, and he seriously considered it, but he wanted to stick with NAS. And then those ungrateful bastards deleted all of his vocals on the third album. <laughs> Wow. He quit He quit the band. They'd been working on a double album that got released as their second album, like half of it. And then he quit or was kicked out or whatever. And they release Naz 3, where it's all written and produced by him, except they re-recorded all the lead vocals with one of the other singers. Just funny because it was one of the guys who like famously didn't like Laura Nero. And like, there's a lot of Laura Nero in that third <laughs> Naz album. <laughs> And if you look at, I just bought a copy like the other day. And if you look at the back cover, there's a picture of the whole band, including Todd Rundgren. I'm like, but he's not there. <laughs> Those aren't his vocals. Weird. Far out. Well, let's play them another song before we dig in any further here, Wes. Where do you want to lead them next? Let's go with Zen Archer. A fine selection. I, I love the Zen Archer.
Speaking of variety, that sounded a little bit like jazz there. There's some genuine jazz saxophone played by either David Sanborn or Michael Brecker. We're not entirely sure. Yeah, this thing's got some big names. It's not not quite as star-studded as some of our other more recent albums, but yeah, David Sanborn. Oh, that saxophone could have also been Todd Rundgren. I think oh, that's right. a... Is he credited probably on saxophone? He is credited on saxophone as well, yeah. He's credited vocals, guitars, keyboards, synthesizers, bass guitar, drums, percussion, saxophone, electronic effects, production. Yeah, most of this is him. Mm. But maybe we're getting ahead of ourselves. Perhaps. 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 Well, we'll pick it up. We were back in 1972. He puts out Something Anything and... Double LP. Double LP. And kind of a bridge, I would say, between his initial uh, albums under the moniker Runt. This is the first one that bore his name, Todd Rundgren, and kind of introduces more of the like psychedelic aspects and some of the kind of playful, strange Todd, I yeah. feel like, gets kind of introduced in there. And that... Leads us to his one of his biggest hit songs, Hello, It's Me, that still gets played on the radio almost nonstop, I'd say. It's probably being played somewhere right now on the radio. And that comes out and is hitting the charts right at the same time this album comes out, A Wizard, A True Star, which ended up having no singles released from it. <laughs> Yeah. By his choice. Yeah. yeah. By his decision. It was not the the studio didn't wasn't confident in it. He said that he wanted it to be experienced as a whole. He described it as a flight plan. And it yeah. all leads to like starts off with the shorter songs, snippet, 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 and then into like the full longer songs. He also had the privilege of being an artist this early into his career where he was successful enough, especially from his engineering and production side where he could make whatever he wanted on the record without thinking at all about the financial success of it. Yeah. Cause he, he made so much money as a producer that he had no idea how much money he had. He just knew that if he went to the bank and asked for a couple hundred thousand dollars. They give it. Him. <laughs> <laughs> and and he was like, he was building a whole like special studio for this album, which he didn't finish in time. Like there's whole kinds of weird stuff that he was doing for this record. And he, I think he said it in the end, he felt it was rushed. <laughs> Interesting. It seems like he's been all about doing all kinds of weird stuff many times mm -hmm. throughout his life. He's had all kinds of different like projects that he's, he's fully devoted himself to. Yeah. He's strange like that, but there's, Two things that seem to be the impetus of the direction of this, one of which was him rebelling against being the male Carol King and wanting to not be... He's kind of rejecting the success of some of the hits from Something Anything. And he's also doing psychedelic drugs for the first time in his life before this, and that appears to have affected him in a you know, a way that those things do. Would this have been right around the same time he produced the New York Dolls album? Yes, that was cool. the same year, Peter, 1973. That's kind of what I, before I even got to this album, you know, I knew that he had produced them and I didn't understand his timeline. I thought maybe he started as a producer and then his solo work came later, but obviously it was kind of all happening It's kind of once. simultaneous, yeah, because yeah, he... Also introduced the band Sparks two years before this, producing their first album. Though at the time they were known as Half Nelson. Oh, that's right. <laughs> also in 1973, he helped produce and make records with the bands Grand Funk, Bad Finger, and Fanny. Yeah, so he was... He'd worked with the band before that too in 70. Mm -hmm. He was very busy. It's stage fright. Yeah, yeah, that's right. He's all over the place. So 
the fact that he got invited to engineer stage fright is kind of astounding because he said previous to that, his only real experience with engineering was the two sessions that he did with Naz, where he taught himself how to record a band during those sessions. And then apparently did a good enough job that studios then wanted to hire him for big records. And, and then he recorded the band yeah, who were like a pretty big deal already by the time stage fright came out. Yeah. yeah. And he was 22. It's absurd. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's really ridiculous. No, his production's just insane. Like how many people he's worked with. The year after this, he goes on to produce Daryl Hall and John Oates' album War Babies, which I highly recommend. It's a great record. I sought it out because of the Todd Rundgren connection. I almost always buy a record that Todd Rundgren produced. He produced uh, Steve Hillage from Gong's album L. Wow. Did Better Hell for Meatloaf. Yeah. I didn't realize that till today, just looking at stuff. I was like, oh, he did Bad Out of Hell. Patti Smith's Wave might be the best Patti Smith record. Wow. Easter comes close, but there's one song that makes it really hard for me to call it my favorite. <laughs> I, I can guess what that is. Yeah, I bet you can. <laughs> and he goes on to do uh, Skylarking by XTC, which is probably my least favorite Tom Rundgren produced album. It's still pretty good. I just can't. Oh, are you not an XTC I fan? can't get into XTC. Oh. I, I don't dislike XTC. I just have never connected with it. Yeah. I think that album in particular is really good. Yeah, I, I, that's the first one I heard of theirs, and I really like that one. It's the only one I have. An English settlement. I did read the singer of that band threatened to split his head open with an axe during the production of that album. <laughs> Rundgren's? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, and Rundgren had a kind of a reputation for being sort of difficult and sarcastic and aloof-seeming. I kind of, he just, yeah, he comes off as a sort of aloof, existing on another plane kind of person to me. Yeah, well, this album is this album is uh, good evidence of that. This album was entirely recorded on a different plane. <laughs> he actually said at no point during the actual recording was anyone on psychedelics during this album. It was influenced by his experience with psychedelics, but they were relatively sober in the recording of it. Yeah, yeah, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, it's out there, but focused and tight. Yeah. yeah. A guy with that kind of type A personality would not want to be imp- impeding his his mind while working, I don't think. Yeah, that tracks. Should I get to the list of people on this record? Yeah. It seems like it's that time. Todd Rundgren. Todd Rundgren's on this record. <laughs> he does an astonishing amount of it. But aside from him... He has a, a buddy of his who would go on to be in Utopia, Mark Moogie Klingman, who, you know, you'd presume the nickname Moogie was because he played the Moog, which he did. But You mean the Moog? His did nick- he play the Moog? Yes. Uh, also known as the Moog. <laughs> <laughs> I think especially back then, a lot of people didn't know better. <laughs> I'm sure it was the Moog much more often well, than the Moog. Let me tell you, though, his nickname had nothing to do with the synthesizer. It was just how one of his nieces tried to say his name Mark, but was trying to say Marky, but I guess would just say Moogie. So that's where his nickname actually comes from, and then he would go on to play a Moog synthesizer. (laughs) Hey, that has my name on it. I like to think that after he started playing the synthesizer, he would correct people and say, uh, it's pronounced Mogi. <laughs> Mark Mogi. <laughs> so he co-wrote Buzzy Linhart's biggest hit, You Gotta Have Friends, which we did an episode on Buzzy mm-hmm. back in the day. Interesting connection. Makes sense. I think they both have similar uh, creative energies. For sure. Mark backed up Lou Reed during the Transformer era live band. He played with Hendrix, Chuck Berry, the Allman Brothers. He was uh, played with some heavy hitters. In addition to him, you got 
Ralph Schneckett. I didn't recognize a lot of these names, so I, I, I'm not much help with pronunciations. But Yeah, the only names I actually recognized before this was Rick Derringer and David Sanborn. Yep, same. But Ralph Schneckett played keyboards, who he also played in Carol King's live band. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's making some great efforts to escape the tag. <laughs> yeah. And... Ralph also went on to make the music for the Pokemon TV show. <laughs> oh, wow. I do think it's pronounced Shuck It. Shuck It. That's what it looks like to me. Cool. Yeah. Ralph But now Shuck he's it. my hero because he did the Pokemon music. Do you do the theme song? Yeah. Then yeah, hero. Hero. You got John Simeos on drums, who also played with Buzzy Linhart. Played with Carly Simon, Mitch Ryder in the Detroit Wheels, and is on the Frampton Comes Alive album. And wrote all the music for the Yu-Gi-Oh! TV show. No. (laughs) Get out of here, Sean. With your misinformation. It was a lucky guess. (laughs) (laughs) They were enemies. Separate card games. (laughs) You got... John Sigler on bass guitar and cello. The previously mentioned Rick Derringer on guitar. He played in the McCoys. He played with Steely Dan. The Winter Brothers. He played with Cindy Lauper. He's a pretty big guitar guy. You got the Brecker Brothers. Michael Brecker on sax. Played with a few jazz guys. Uh, let's see. Miles Davis. Chick Corea, Jaco, Herbie Hancock, our dude Quincy Jones, played yeah. with Dire Straits, Joni Mitchell, and then you got his brother on the trumpet, Randy Brecker. You got Barry Rogers on the trombone, and David Sanborn, also on saxophone, also heavy hitter. Yeah, he's been on some other records we've done, Bob James, Touchdown. Yeah, he was on a ton of records as a session player. James Brown, Cass Stevens, The Boss, Rolling Stones, Toto. So he's all over on a lot of things. And you got Buffalo Bill Gelber on bass guitar and John Cosgrove on the guitar. I want to circle back to Michael uh, Brecker. In 1973... He was on both A Wizard, A True Star and Mind Games by John Lennon, which is funny Ooh. to me because Rundgren wrote the song Rock and Roll Pussy to make fun of John Lennon. <laughs> which is on this album. It's one of the, yeah. short, the short songs. Yeah, that was a part of a short-lived beef between Todd and John Lennon where Todd described John Lennon as a limousine liberal, someone who would sing about the working class, but then jet set around the world and eat fancy food and hang out with rich people. But they squashed that beef because Todd saw it like in the papers and stuff and was like, they're just using this beef to, you know, sell papers. And, you know, this John guy's not so bad. So they bury the beef. But then... Mark David Chapman, who shot and killed John Lennon, was arrested wearing a Todd Rundgren t-shirt. Oh, no. And there was a copy of a Todd Rundgren album in the hotel room, and he was like an obsessive Todd Rundgren fan and claimed that some of the beef he had seen back when this was happening was part of what inspired him to shoot John Lennon. Wow. Well, uh, that's interesting. You always hear you always hear about the catcher in the rye influence on Mark David Chapman in that action, but I that was that's news to me. Yeah, I hadn't heard that. So, rock and roll pussy is to the death of John Lennon as Helter Skelter is to the Manson murders. Is what you're saying? <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. Yeah. Well, let's rip another song, Wes. Where would you like to go next? I don't remember what I'd said. 
think he um, said... Oh, he goes, sometimes I don't know how to feel. It's... Okay. Sometimes I don't know what song I want to play. And the next year, he would go on to do a Hall & Oates record, which makes perfect sense after that. It, seem, it seems like it was hard to grow up in the Philly area at that time and not be heavily soul-influenced. Yeah, I mean, the Philly soul scene was huge. Yeah. I know, like, when I was researching him, it said he was, like, huge Gamble & Huff fan growing mm-hmm. up. I mean, how could you not be at that point? Like, Yeah. <laughs> I was also thinking, listening to that song, it's really interesting how much the perception of these songs changes, whether you're picking out tracks from the middle like we're doing, or whether you're playing the whole thing start to finish. It makes a lot of these pop songs sound a little a little more tortured, <laughs> a little weirder in context, mm. you know? They're like kind of a break from the oddness, but it just seems like the weird songs on either end are pulling them apart somehow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that seemed more like it could have been a radio song listening to it separate from the rest of the album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I don't think it would have been impossible to have a single from this album. It was just, as we said, a deliberate choice on his part that it had to all be experienced together. Yeah, I've got a live Todd Rundgren record that this is one of the few songs off of this that is on there. Like, I think he does the medley is this that might be it <laughs> yeah and this album was fairly critically acclaimed when it came out though it did not sell well yeah <laughs> because there was no single and it's a challenging listen if you listen i mean we're picking out mostly so far the songs that sound like songs and there's a whole lot we didn't play that are I don't even know what to call them, like little sketches of songs. Snip, snippets. Yeah, it's it's like a pre-guided by voices or something like that. These little like yeah, it's snippets of of songs of pop songs. So uh, another thing I had heard Todd say in an interview was that the big hits that he'd had on his previous album, something anything, he had put very little effort into. The, the song I Saw the Light, he said he wrote in about 20 minutes and <laughs> has had this massive hit. And he felt that the pop song structure was too easy at that point. And he wanted to not only make 
an experimental record that showed a lot of his non-pop influences, but he wanted to completely experiment with song structure as well, which is why it was like, instead of having verse chorus and a bridge, I wanted to have a song that was just a verse if I wanted to, or make two songs and then splice them together in weird ways and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah. And he would go on to form Utopia after this and produce, you know, all kinds of hits. He performed the first interactive concert where people would request songs and then he would play them on the TV, like during the concert somehow. Hmm. There's a few different things that I didn't understand. It also said he he created the first interactive CD, but I didn't find any explanation of what that was or how one makes a CD interactive. That still doesn't mesh in my brain. <laughs> okay. Well, do they is it like those like an enhanced CD where you the album came with a bonus content on the CD that you would pop in your drive? <sighs> Because they used to, that was that became fairly common in the late '90s to the early 2000s, and then it just obviously dropped off <laughs> as the CD yeah. format went out. After uh, Dave Matthews rooted your computer yeah. with theirs, <laughs> yeah. Then, yeah, 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 people were afraid to put discs into their drives after that. Yeah, he made the first music video to mix computer graphics with live action footage. And he also created the first tablet in 1980 that he would go on to license to Apple. Wow. What? <laughs> yeah, I'm glad you wrote that down because I was trying to find that. Because I was like, I swear he invented something that blew my mind that he invented it. It was the first color graphics tablet. So I think yeah. maybe there'd been a non-color one before, but he invented the first color one. Yeah. So he was a pretty wild dude he's still out there he just got inducted to the rock and roll hall of fame in 2021 it feels too late yeah it's way too late for him people like asked him about that for years and he's like i don't give a shit about the rock and roll hall of fame like (laughs) i'm a wizard a true star yeah like (laughs) he's had enough money to not have to do anything since like 1970 (laughs) well before that (laughs) yeah yeah and so it's like, what's he care about accolades? Well, you know what else makes his induction pretty great? Guess who else was inducted to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in 2021? <laughs> Carol King. Carol King. <laughs> Together till the end. Yeah. Cruel That's joke great. of reality. Also too late there, although we did say that she had got, gotten in with Jerry Goffin as a songwriting team in 90. But as a performer, it was just last year. Way too late, Rock Hall. Do better. <laughs> or don't. So people have something to complain about every year. That's fine, too. I know. <laughs> yeah. If they did things right, I'd never talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> they probably understand that at this point. <laughs> They're like, hey, we should. I think that's why they keep putting people who aren't rock stars in. They're like, Let's put ABBA in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. That's going to piss a lot of people mm-hmm. off. Let's keep putting rap people in. Yeah, chamber. exactly. Whatever. <laughs> What's the one thing that would piss off old white men the most? <laughs> ah, rappers in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. <laughs> My main problem is I feel like they've chosen bad choices of rappers to put in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Well, they've won. We're still talking about them. Exactly. Yeah, <laughs> here we are. If you're in the Cleveland area. <laughs> hey, it's a nice museum. I'll say that much. It is. Hey, well, Sean. Yeah, I was going to say, you guys want to talk about maybe some other records that people should buy if they're in to this odd record? Yes. Sure. Well, you got I got. Don't you dare say Godly and Crane. <laughs> I would never say Godly and Crane. I do have a 10cc record. 10 CC. On this I was going to say, it's going to be 10cc. <laughs> But first up, though, (laughs) the record that I think is probably most similar to this also came out in 1973, and that is Boulders by Roy Wood. Oh, yeah. See, I 
I was thinking wiz- wizard. <laughs> <laughs> wizard and intrusive. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Roy Wood from Wizard, from The Move, and also from Early Electric Light Orchestra. But he has a solo album called Boulders that is a similar energy to this. It's kind of an early bedroom pop, highly experimental. It goes all over the place. There's non-traditional instruments and song structure, and you can find it even cheaper than this Todd Rundgren album, and I'm sure we will do an episode on it eventually. Next up, from 1974, 10cc's Sheet Music. Their second mm-hmm. album, when they started adding even more effects and getting even weirder while still maintaining their brilliant pop songwriting edge, just like Todd Rundgren. And my last mm-hmm. recommendation, because I feel like some other hosts might have a few to add as well, from 1979, something a little bit different, but I think works really well, Stevie Wonder's Journey Through the Secret Life of Plants, which was another album from a, a pop songwriting genius that confused a lot of people in its odd direction. Uh, so if you're if you're into that kind of vibe, definitely pick up that Stevie Wonder record. Anybody else got any recommendations? One that I was thinking of that, I don't know, it doesn't really qualify... Is that strange of a record, nor does it, pro- it probably can't be found for five or less anymore because of uh, a certain popular television show that it, it was used in. Uh, but the Badfinger, straight up, which was produced by Todd Rundgren, you used to be able to find that for next to nothing. That's got Baby Blue on it, which famously was used in the finale of Breaking Bad. And, and I think that was one of the impetuses for its rise in price i don't know if sean you would have been selling records prior to that did badfinger used to be more cheap badfinger lps have always been hard to find since i've been looking for records and knew about that band however their 45s are always really really cheap which has kind of been interesting to me like the songs from the albums that are expensive are dirt cheap (laughs) like dollar for really nice copies kind of thing but occasionally you can find Badfinger records. The The cheapest... It depends on the Badfinger It does. Records. I would say probably one of the cheapest, easiest ones to find is Ass, which is also Todd Rundgren produced. Okay. Yeah, that's one that I've meant to spend more time with because the name is humorous to me in my juvenile sense of humor. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know if that one... If they get... I mean, Badfinger do get a little weird here and there. Like, you know, not... I wouldn't say so much experimental as like they, they kind of jump into some weird songwriting places sometimes. Uh, but th- I still think they're still an overlooked underappreciated band. Mm-hmm. Definitely creative song structure and approach, but just amazing pop songwriting, very underappreciated band, even though the records are not cheap. Any other suggestions? No, I'm going to, uh, well, I, <laughs> I have one. Oh, um, at least one. I mean, I'd pick up, if you see a record and you see Todd Rundgren produced it, it's probably worth checking out. But probably the one I would uh, most recommend, if you like this one, would be Hall & Oates' War Babies, which came out in 74. He put them more in like a rock format, which they hadn't really done at that point. They've been much more soul-focused. And he also he plays lead guitar on that record, and it, it kicks ass. It kicks a bad finger album. It does kick a bad finger. <laughs> Wes, is there anything else you want to say about Todd before we get out of here? He's Liv Tyler's dad, sort of. Oh, I did see that. Uh, he, he was in a long-term relationship with B.B. Buell, the Playboy Playmate, who is Liv Tyler's mom. Also very good friends with Patti Smith. If you read the book, Please Kill Me, there's like a whole section where B.B. Buell and Patti Smith are talking about Todd Rundgren. I meant to pull that book out and find it before this, but I didn't because I don't know where it is. But I just remember reading it because like he hung out with the punk people, even though he is by far not someone you would consider a part of that scene other than the fact that he did the New York Dolls album. But anyway, B.B. Buell is Liv Tyler's mom. She had had an affair with Steven Tyler of Aerosmith, but when she gave birth to Liv, she had no interest in having a continued relationship with Steven Tyler because he was majorly on drugs at that time. And she's like, this will not be a good father. 
So Todd Rundgren raised her as his own daughter until they split up. And then around the time she was 10 or 11, she found out that Stephen Tyler was her actual father. And then she started appearing in their videos. The yeah, and it's Smith weird. Videos. I hate that video. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> well, any final thoughts on Todd? Do you think we've done the wizard, the true star justice here? Of 70s artists who get called God, he's better than Clapton. <laughs> that's a that's perfect. I can't think of a better way to wrap things up here, Wes. Do you have anything you'd like to plug? I mean, I don't have a lot to plug. I just, things I never mentioned the other time. <laughs> I do still have a defunct podcast that is up called Clock Blocked, which is about time travel media. You can listen to it. It's pretty good, I think. I also keep forgetting I had... I have an EP on Bandcamp that you can check out if you want from several years ago. The band is called Captain Gelato and the Supersonic Cosmonauts. We got made fun of by people from the hard times, so Wow. There's that. <laughs> wow. What kind of music is it like it's psychedelic? Uh, yeah, it's psychedelic. Um it might be bad. I don't know. I like it. <laughs> A friend of mine was moving back to uh indonesia after finishing school and three of us who all knew each other through wider decided to make an album real quick so it's a real short ep it's like five songs long it's about like 30 minutes so if you got an extra 30 minutes go on to Bandcamp, check out captain gelato and the supersonic cosmonauts captain gelato and the supersonic cosmonauts yeah. got it well thanks so much oh you can also <laughs> check out my old prog rock shows they're on uh, Mixcloud. Oh, are they? Um, yeah, Captain Gelato should be on Mixcloud. There's a handful of prog rock shows and then like two jazz shows before Wider told me that I wasn't allowed to put them online anymore. But I was like, I'll do that, but I won't take down the ones that are already up. Ooh. Bold. Yeah. You got a rebellious spirit in you. <laughs> <laughs> Got a little Todd Rundgren in you. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me. Captain Gelato. Always happy to be here. A.K.A. Wes Wheat. Yeah, third time. Third time you're, you've been on. And I've, and I've done the trifecta of hosts. Yes, it's, it's true. It's true. You've, uh, yeah. Co-hosted with all three of us now. All right, well, we are going to wrap up this episode of I'd Buy That for a Dollar. What are we going to leave them with, Wes? What did you pick for us to go out on? Well, since the last time I was here, we covered a Smokey Robinson record. I figured it would be amiss of me to not feature the Smokey Robinson cover that's on A Wizard of True Star. So we're going to end out with his cover of Ooh Baby Baby. From the Melody of Soul songs that he has on the side, too. The, yeah. me the medley. Did I say melody? Yeah. <laughs> it's okay, <My> brain... though. <laughs> it's, a, it's a melody and a medley. Yeah, I love the the medley he does here. It, it feels like listening to soul music while on drugs to me. Not that I've done that. <laughs> he would never. It's, it's, yeah. He imagines that's what it would be like. I imagine that's what it's like, though. Well, thanks for joining us, Wes. I'm co-host Jeremy. I'm co-host Sean. I'm co-host Peter. Remember, check out patreon.com slash I'd buy that podcast before February 28th to get those cool exclusive gifts. Do it. Do it. The mug looks really cool. Oh, it is. But in the game, I lost you. What a price to pay. Hey, I'm crying.